in this world in which we live, it seems as though righteousness is almost like an alien. In fact, we live in a, a place right now, a time in history, where it seems like we almost can't even agree on what righteousness is, if there is even a standard of righteousness. I mean, just think about it. You look at the news, and ordinarily you think about the office of president as being one where the standard of righteousness is rightly reflected and taught, and yet we have a current president who thinks a past president should have been indicted, and that president thinks a current president should be indicted, saying that both think that the leaders of our country have been for the last 8 to 12 to 16 years unrighteous. It also seems that as you read articles in the newspaper, and you study the way that even Christians in leadership have been treating each other as of late, there are constant claims of all kinds of unrighteousness. I read an article just yesterday that just had me sad. It was a, an article that was talking about uh, one leader in a, a large denomination accusing other denominational leaders of racism, sexism, elitism. And I found as I just read it, my heart dropping over the fact that there's this lack of righteousness in leadership, even in and amongst the ranks of those who would call themselves Christians. Well, we know that it's not just that as you look outside that we have a problem with righteousness. I mean, even when you look at yourself, you know, we ain't right. I mean, we've got problems. In, internally, we don't think rightly. Often we feel like I'm not looking at this problem in the right way. I don't know the right response to it, even though I know God's word, and so that, that's difficult. So righteousness, it can feel like it is so far from us. We can know that we struggle with even those who love Christ, with sin, with insecurity, and with self-pity. The war is real. And it's easy to wonder if we will ever experience the, the fullness of righteousness and grow uh, whether or not we will be able to be faithful and patient as we wait on Christ's return to make good on his promise to set all things right. We could easily get impatient on that day. We don't long for righteousness to come and visit, though, do we? We want righteousness to come and dwell. We want righteousness not just to come visit for a holiday and then go away. We want righteousness to come and stay forever. We want to live in a world where we know what righteousness is, where we're righteous, where the standard of righteousness is kept, where people do what they are ought to do, where we know that there is a right that is to be done. But what about you? Are you waiting, are you longing for that place where righteousness will dwell? Well, we're finishing up our Remember This series, where we have been looking at 2 Peter this morning. We're in chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, as we are wrapping this book up. And Peter, we know in this letter, has told us that he is facing death. And as he does, he wants to write this letter to remind his and future generations not to listen to false teachers. Don't listen to false teachers who will and are telling you that Jesus is not coming back. Or that, that it, because of that, it doesn't matter how you live morally. Instead, he says, Jesus is coming back. Therefore, it, it matters incredibly how you live every day. Now, we've seen a number of tensions throughout this letter. You'll remember that there's been this constant kind of tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We, we saw the tension of this day that's going to be a day of judgment for some and salvation for others. But today, we're going to find another tension, and that is this. It's in our big idea that Christians should pursue the day of God with a patient eagerness. We see both of these themes throughout. There is going to be a sense in which, as we've seen before, we should be patient on the day of God, and yet at the same time, we should eagerly hasten that day. Two realities that are met together as the Christian looks forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Well, you'll see this first in verses 11 to 13, where Peter picks up telling us that we need to let eagerness for the last day shape our every day. Uh, we should let eagerness for that last coming day shape our every day. Now, just to give you a feel for where we are in the text, in verses 11 to 12 that we're about to look at, they summarize verses 8 to 10, just before, and are moving us forward towards the conclusion of this letter. Now, Peter is summing up what he has just said in verses 7 and 10, that 
On that day when God comes back, when Jesus comes back, he is going to come with this massive cosmic experience where this whole world is going to burn and be melted and give way to a new creation. And and he points to that burning of all of creation, the physical heavens and earth that will burn up on the last day in verses 11 to 12. Now, we call, if you're looking to study in, say, a, a big systematic theology, the doctrine of last times or the last day, uh, you would look up a word called eschatology. It is the study of last days. And Peter has been talking a lot about eschatology in this book. Ethics is a word that you would use to look up how you should live your moral lives today. What we find is, is that Peter says that you should not actually separate ethics from eschatology. Your study of the last days and last times ought to directly impact and shape your ethics and how you live morally every day. Notice what he says in verses 11 to 12. He, He says it this way. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now notice here first the dissolving of the heaven and earth he says should make us more godly in verses 11 to 12. Peter repeats the same word for dissolved or destroyed in verses 10, 11, and 12. He, he wants us to have this, this fiery end on the forefront of our mind, this day of the Lord, which he calls the day of God here in verse 11. See, the false teachers, they mocked the idea of some kind of last day. They said that that last day is not coming. It's slow and it's never going to show up. And they lived every day in light of that thought. They were living according to their appetites, whatever that appetite is, whether it be for food or sex or drink or stuff or money so they could get more stuff. But Peter's point here is don't live for stuff with no future and no hope. It's going to be burned up. That shouldn't be your focus for how you live each day. See, those things are destined for the fire. This reminds me of a a famous quote from Denzel Washington. I think it originated with him where he says, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Now, I've seen a U-Haul behind a hearse, but I, I know what he means. He's not talking about what you might see on the interstate, but the sense of when you die and you go to be with the Lord, you can't take your stuff with you. At least that stuff that is of this world, not of the next. And Peter says, remembering this day, this last day that's coming, is is a day that Christians should remember. And in light of that, you should ask yourself, what sort of person should I be given that this day is coming? I'm wondering, have you asked yourself that? What kind of person should I be? Because there are different sorts of kinds of people. What kind should I be in light of the awesome reality that God is going to come back and he is going to to burn away all that is to bring about something brand new? See, cultivating an unblinking, eager expectation of the fiery last day that awaits ought to, according to Peter, ignite holy behavior and godly acts. That's what should happen if we're thinking rightly about the coming day. That's righteous living. Righteous living ought to emanate from and come out of this looking towards the last day. See, Peter's already told us that this requires both God's grace and our grit. If you want a righteous life, it, it begins with God's grace. But he's told us already that it also requires our grit. In fact, in Peter 1.3, you'll remember that he began this letter declaring that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If you want to have godly acts in your life, then, then you need this gift, this grant from God of all things that pertain to it. And God literally granted or dropped everything that we needed for a godly life in our laps at salvation when we put our faith in him. That's God's grace. And yet he didn't take a breath 
before Peter says just two verses later in chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, for this very reason, because you have experienced God's grace, make every effort to supplement your faith with, amongst other things, godliness. So God grants godliness, and yet you must strive to be godly. God literally has gifted it to us, and yet we need to grind it out. It is a grant, and it is a grind. Don't miss this. The Bible says godly living requires God's grace and our grit. It takes both. If we love Jesus, we will make every effort to obey him and thus look more like Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. That's what godly living looks like. It looks like Jesus. But catch this. Peter also says that we should wait for and hasten the coming day of God. Did you see that? We should wait for and and hasten it. Now, Peter repeats this word, wait, as well, in verses 12, 13, and 14. He wants us to make sure that we remember that we are waiting, waiting, waiting. Now, here's the problem. When you read wait in the English, that might sound like a really passive kind of activity, right? Like you're at the MVD waiting on your license plate, and you're just sitting there waiting. What are you doing when you're waiting? Nothing. Playing Tetris on your iPhone. I don't know, but you're just trying to sort of wait for it to end, But this word for wait in the New Testament, and here it actually, you'll see, it carries more of an eager expectation and anticipation of the eschatological hope of Christians. But what does it mean for us then, not only to wait eagerly, but did you catch that he says that we are to hasten that day? You might be reading that and say, does that say what it looks like it says? that we can actually hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? See, Peter believes the godly lives of God's people, in some sense, speeds his coming to bring cosmic judgment. Now, this is by no means detracting from God's sovereign purposes. We see that tension again, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Peter is not here trying to give a grand systematic theology of how God's sovereign purposes interact with our responsibility, yet he does want to highlight the reality that the same God who knows the hairs on our heads also knows the hour and even the moment of his return, and yet there is a way that we live that can hasten his coming. Peter doesn't want us to miss that the lives of his people really do matter. Now please hear me. We have a grand vision of the sovereignty of God at Trinity Bible Church. We don't flinch at saying that. And yet, if if you hear us say that, and you miss the awe-inspiring reality that God says that the way that his children live, and the way that people live, and the choices that we make don't matter, you have missed us. It is because of God's sovereignty that the things that we do actually do matter, not just today, but forever. So how do we hasten his coming? Well, notice that he says... There are a couple things here that key us and tip us off. First, repentance and faith hasten the day coming in verse 9. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. People, God's people, turning from living for sin to living for Christ in all things is is hastening the coming day. Not only that, you'll, you'll notice in verses 11 to 12 here that he says holy and godly living hastens the coming of the day. If you're truly eager and ready for the day of God, your life ought to be increasingly godly. And in doing so, it's hastening the day. But we find other things throughout the New Testament. If you remember that Jesus, even as he's teaching the disciples how to pray, in Matthew 6.10, seems to say that prayer hastens the day. Doesn't he teach us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And what about evangelism? In Matthew 24, 14, we're told that evangelism hastens the day. There, Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we are preaching to all nations, knowing that once that happens, the end will arrive. But, you might ask, why would Christians desire such a terrifying day where everything's going to melt away? Well, it's because in verse 13 we find that Christians, they await another reality that will be ushered in on that day, and that is the bringing about of a new heavens and a new earth. The old heavens and old earth will pass away, but notice verse 13, 
God's promised us a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what we look forward to. That's the blessed hope of the people of God. That that judgment that is coming, that will be fiery, that will melt down all things that are, will give way to a new heavens and a new earth with the people who have new bodies who will live forever with God. What a day! That day of God not only promises a cosmic purging by fire, but Christians who eagerly await and anticipate a new, restored heavens and earth characterized, catch this, by righteousness not visiting but dwelling. Do you see that? It has come to stay. It will not go away. Now, when you read this, righteousness, as you know, in this life can seem so fleeting or absent. And yet, we have a greater problem. We know that there is a testimony, there's a testimony of Scripture that as God looks down on earth, He says that all are what? None are righteous. No, not one. And so how can an unrighteous people live in a place where righteousness dwells? Seems like you kind of messed the thing up, right? Sort of like the idea that, you know, as soon as I find a perfect church, I'll go there. The only problem is if you went there, it would no longer be a perfect church. See, Christians are not a people who believe that they are perfect, but a people who are being made perfect. A people who are holy, but they are also being made holy. Isaiah 64 is interesting. There we find that the prophet finds the people confessing that their righteous deeds are like polluted garments. It's the reality of righteousness this side of Christ and outside of Christ. So how can an unrighteous people dwell with God where righteousness dwells? Well, here's how. God promises that he's going to do something new in Isaiah, that he's going to bring about salvation through judgment. That's where he promises in Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, you might be thinking, what are those former things? Well, a lot of things, but for one thing, there are many sins. Of course, Paul reminds us that God sent Jesus, who lived a perfectly righteous life, to come and die for us on the cross where he took all of our sins and paid the debt that we owed in return, gave us credit for his righteous life. That's our new bank account. The righteousness of Jesus it was empty and negative, and now it is far in the positive. Now, if you put your faith in Christ, that is the rock of righteousness that you stand on. Every righteous act that we do in Christ springs forth from this grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. No longer are even our best deeds filthy rags, but in Christ, they are seen as acceptable and honorable and will last forever because of his work. But don't miss this. We struggle to live righteous lives because we are still in the corrupt world. Even in Christ, there is a fight and a wrestle, spiritually and otherwise, to obey Christ, to live righteously. But, brothers and sisters, if you are tired and you are weary, not only by your sin and the sins of others, if you feel hopeless, in your life right now, like nothing is ever going to ultimately change and make this better. If you feel like there are rights that will never be wronged, there are acts of sin that have been committed by you or against you that will never be fixed, we are told that there is a coming day. A day when we will no longer wait up, wake up every morning fighting sin, death, the devil, and all the evil fleshly desires that require so much grit. God will make all things new. No more death, no more injustice, no more tears, no more fears. We will have new eternal bodies and an unfading new heavens and new earth that will no longer await the revealing of the sons and daughters of God because they will be seen and known as they truly are. See, righteousness will not be a daily battle for us against the world or us with ourselves. Everything will be right. Everything will be right all the time. Can you imagine a world like that? You can't. You can dream, you can hope, but in a corrupt world, you don't even have the equipment that you need to be able to understand the goodness of what is to come. Maybe, maybe the world will be, that is coming will be righter sometimes than others, but it will never be wrong. And that's the future that awaits us. That's the future that we eagerly look for and want to hasten if we trust God's word more than our own desires. But don't miss this. 
people united to the righteous King Jesus. Hear me. They seek to live righteous lives. It might look clunky, but they are growing in it. They want to be righteous like the righteous king, and they long for the place where righteousness dwells. It's what a Christian looks like. Well, notice second. Do these two things, do these two things as you wait. Be diligent and count in verses 14 to 16. So Peter tells us, as you're waiting, I want you to be diligent and to count. Uh, Notice the third beloved that begins verse uh, verse 14. Here again, he's starting a, a new section. And as he does, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. Now, you might be asking, what are these things that we are waiting for? Well, I think it's talking about the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells that he just spoke of. And, and Peter tells Christians to do two things as they eagerly anticipate that day and as they hasten it to be diligent and count. First, be diligent to be found in verse 14. He says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter seems to assume these Christians are eagerly looking forward to the day of judgment and salvation. Do you you see that? He, He says, since you were looking forward to these things, he's just understanding that if you were a Christian, these Christians, their eyes are set there. And Peter told them to be diligent, already before in 2 Peter 1.10. It's nothing new. There he said, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall away. Speaking of a virtuous life, if you're practicing these things, you'll never fall away. You'll never apostatize. Now that word to be found is interesting, and it's a word that really should remind us more of the courtroom than it does a good game of hide and seek, right? It's not like, oh, I You need to be diligent to be found. Make sure that you're like hiding at night with Christmas lights on or something. No, he's he's giving an image of a defendant in court where a judge finds a defendant as guilty or innocent. You remember that Peter warned that false teachers are blots and blemishes. That's the opposite of the way that Peter describes Jesus in 1 Peter 1.19-20 where he said elect exiles were ransomed from the futile world, uh, ways of this world with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without spot or blemish. See, here we find that he wants them to be found like Jesus on the last day. Christ, who was perfectly righteous in all of his life as he went to the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. But not only that, not only does he want us to be more like Jesus than those false teachers who were blots and blemishes, he says he wants us also to be found at peace. We were slaves of Satan, but are now slaves of Christ. Peter prayed for grace and peace to be multiplied to these Christians at the beginning of the letter. He wants them to increase in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. This could speak here, this, this idea of us being found in peace of a kind of internal conscience experience, but I think that it speaks more of the objective reality that by Christ's sacrifice, we now have peace with God. And not only do we have peace with God, we should live a virtuous life in light of that coming day so that we will be found at peace on that day. See, Peter has no trouble saying that we need to be diligent in living a godly life so that we are found to be justified and at peace on the last day. True believers persevere in faithfulness to the end. That's what Christian, true Christians do. As Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. Or to put it negatively, uh, we are not saved by faith in works, but a faith that works. If we really have faith and are united to Christ, it will change the way that we live our moral lives. But notice he says, not only be diligent, but second, count the Lord's patience as salvation in verse 15. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, one Greek dictionary defined this word for count as engaging in an intellectual process. To think, regard, or consider the Lord's patience. Some of us know that because we associate counting with math, and some of you guys hate math because it feels like you have to think too hard and you can't ever do it, right? 
Well, well, there's the same sense in which counting ought to mean that we are engaging in thinking about, processing intellectually, in a spiritual kind of way, the patience of our Lord, and understanding that its end is salvation. Now, false teachers counted their sense of the slowness of God coming back, of Jesus returning, as an opportunity to deny that he was coming at all, and an excuse to live in an ungodly way. We saw that in verse 9. In other words, Christians here, we are told, ought to instead count the patience of our Lord as salvation. His timing, his patience, not slowness, is salvation. Christians should treat the timing of Christ's return as salvation, not slowness. Now, this is a case where the Lord in verse 15 is is speaking of God from verse 14. But how do we count the patience of God as salvation? We know that salvation is used elsewhere in this letter in four places and one uh, in, in, uh, in 1 Peter as well. In 1 Peter 1, 5, 9, 10, and 2, 2, uh, all of those, Peter is referring to the ultimate salvation from sin and death at the end of life. So he's speaking of the last day in that salvation. Now why else might Peter say this than that he's concerned that at least some who he's speaking to may be in danger of not being ready for Christ's return on the last day, or may fall out of being ready. They might be unstable in some way. See, I take this to mean that, for one, that those who truly have saving faith persevere to the end. Peter seems to understand that. And second, that part of Christians making it to ultimate salvation is continuing to count the coming of the last day is God's salvation for those in Christ. We continue to see that God is going to set things right, that he will judge those outside of him, but he will also bring about a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells for those who are in Christ. You know, it really means that we are taking God's word on the last day above all other words. See, trusting that God's word never writes checks that his power, that his power can't cash is fundamental to the Christian faith. We believe God will keep his word. We believe that God is able to keep his word. We believe that the wisdom behind the word of God is worthy and higher than our wisdom. Now, it might sound like Peter takes a strange turn at the end of verses 15 and 16. Did you catch that? He's getting to the end of the letter. He's been talking about the last day, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, by the way, let me mention Paul. Yeah, Paul's kind of hard to read. All right, let's move on. Well, I don't think that's exactly what's going on. See, I take that what we find in verses 15 to 16 is that some of the errors of the false teachers have come about by ignorant, unstable misinterpretation of Paul's teaching. You'll notice that in verses 15 and 16. Uh, Peter says here, I'm with the apostle Paul, not teaching something different. He would affirm everything I'm saying. Look, Look there again at what he says in the second half of 15 to 16. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do in the other scriptures. There are some that when they read this, they say, well, I, I don't know that Peter would have written this. I mean, don't you remember the way that they were in disagreement where Paul is correcting Peter in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. That's where he is correcting him for treating Gentiles as lesser. He says that his conduct is out of step with the gospel. That means that these two were at odds, and Peter could not have called him here our beloved brother. And who speaks of that way of, of someone that you're in disagreement with? And yet... That's the only evidence of a conflict that we have between these two. I think it also shows that we see that even Peter needed to be kept in step with the gospel. We need the community around us. Peter's not, as some would say, a a kind of pope that has great authority that is beyond correction, speaking from sort of ex-cathedra, from the power of the church for the church, and and sort of the uh, 
uh, and that kind of thing. No, he is a, a Christian who does speak authoritatively, but he is also a man. And the Bible does not hide that Peter is at times out of line. But also notice in favor of the fact that Peter would have spoken of Paul this way, that they ran in the same circles and believed the same gospel. It's very clear. If you even think about Silvanus or Silas, it seems that he acted as a secretary for First Peter. You'll see that in the introduction or the end. But he is also a co-worker with Paul. So they, they all are working together, preaching the gospel, holding to the same gospel. Both Peter and Paul are apostles who are really messengers who delivered Jesus' mail to humanity. And it's the message itself that carries the authority. See, Peter says that Paul preached the same gospel, and he too said Christians need to be diligent to live godly lives and to consider God's patience on the last day as salvation. Not a different message than what Peter preaches or Paul. So why does Peter need to say that here? Why does he need to remind them of this? Well, notice that Peter says some things that Peter calls hard to understand, even for Peter. I was grateful for this line because I find some things that Paul writes to be hard to understand. I just got through preaching Second Peter this morning, and I would say I find some things in Peter hard to understand. Maybe that should be our motto for our upcoming Roman series we're launching this fall. Romans, a series that even Peter says is sometimes hard to understand. But notice that Peter's point is this, that false teachers whom he labels ignorant and unstable twist them to their destruction. See, the Bible speaks of ignorance not only as a, a lack of knowledge, but a moral dimension as well, a, a sort of willful not being teachable, a willful not knowing. And he's already called the, top, the false teachers before unstable in 2.14. The same word is used for what the destruction the same word used for destruction here is the same word that's used earlier for the destruction of the ungodly face on the day of judgment. So the, the ignorant and the unstable, they twist these teachings to their own destruction so that they, along with creation, will be burned up on the last day. Again, I don't think this points to annihilation of humans who have been disobedient to God. I believe that that is an eternal destiny that awaits them. But they twist the scriptures for their own purposes, and they face the fiery judgment for it. Some think that these teachers taught a kind of over-realized eschatology that sort of spiritualized the resurrection and godly living, so that you didn't have to actually obey Christ in the flesh, but that it was just sort of a spiritual way that you viewed yourself mentally or spiritually. But it's more likely that these scoffers, these false teachers, were texting we're, uh, twi we're twisting texts like Galatians 5.1 where he says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. A and then built from that, therefore, you can live however you want. I think they skipped over some of Galatians. They skipped the part about not living according to the flesh but being led by the Spirit. But do you see the seriousness with which Peter understands the Scriptures? Understanding them rightly? They don't just affect the decisions that you will make today. They, they affect and impact your eternal destiny. The way that we read and understand the Bible matters. But second, Peter says Paul's writings are also Scripture here. Not only does he say the false teachers don't just twist Paul, they twist all of the Scriptures. They, they don't just twist what Paul has said, but all of the Bible, they sort of have a tendency to sort of make it fit their own devices. Second, he says, Peter says, Paul's writings are Scripture. Now, this word is often used to describe canonical books in the New Testament. And sometimes, as they talk about the Scriptures, it's speaking of just the Old Testament as a whole. And third, notice quickly that twisting Scripture leads to eternal destruction for you and your hearers. What we teach and what we believe matters. Let me just ask you something. How do you approach God's Word? What's your approach? Do you like to, to twist it or be twisted by it? Does that make sense? 
When you come to the word, are you looking to twist or be twisted? That posture, I think, can change everything. This reminds me of a, a kind of medical show that I watch where uh, there was a scene where an ER doctor takes in this patient and he has this leg that is broken. I mean, just seriously broken and marred. It's literally twisted around because it's not connected to the bone. And, and he kind of like has to sort of say, look, I've got to reset this right now or you're going to lose the leg. And so he, he bends it around to sort of fix it. And he's just screaming out in pain as it's turned around. See, they had to twist it back to reset it, to save it. It was a painful but necessary thing to save the leg and to keep it alive. See, true knowledge is, is good. Good theology is life-giving. But it requires work and labor and sometimes hurt. And, and if done well, it can hurt in such a way that it brings about greater life. So when you're coming to the Scriptures, I'm just wondering, do you look to the Scriptures to support what you already believe? Okay, yes, I like that. I keep that. What is that? I don't understand it. I don't like it. Get rid of that. Oh, this is good. We'll keep this. Are you kind of editing your Bible as you go? See, when you come to Scriptures, do you look to Scriptures to support what you already believe and twist or ignore whatever doesn't agree with your appetites? Or do you come humbly accepting that we need God's Word to reset our twisted lives and beliefs? See, Paul says all scriptures for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. And even as I said that, some of you are like, I like teaching, I don't like rebuke, correction, uh, training sometimes as long as I don't have to sweat. But God's word has glorious promises, doesn't it? If you read enough, the scriptures, I believe, should hurt you in a very good way. They should bring conviction to your soul. They should cause you to see that there's a way that you are living that is not right, but that if you change, it will lead to life and joy and all kinds of godliness that you didn't think possible. See, that's conviction of the Holy Spirit that shows us areas in our lives that need to be changed, that need to be brought back so that we are able to stand more firmly in Christ. Third, verses 70 to 18 say, don't apostatize, grow in grace on, to the day of eternity. Don't apostatize, grow in grace to the day of eternity. Uh, the therefore that begins verse 17 could be speaking of the whole letter, but I take it to first be speaking of the topic just broached in verses 14 to 16 about the ignorant and unstable who twisted scriptures concerning living a virtuous life and the return of Jesus. He says, don't be like those guys. Don't be unstable. I want you to be stable. Peter doesn't want them to be ignorant, but to know this beforehand. Now, what is the this? Well, I think that is the things that he's been talking about in this letter, the things that he's been speaking of. See, this contents of this letter, all concerning the last day, he says, remember this beforehand. Have this set as you prepare for the last day. He tells them to do two things. First, don't apostatize. Don't apostatize. Notice in verse 17, Peter says this. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability. So Peter wants the Christians, to take care or guard closely that you don't listen to people who are not guarding their lives and doctrine. He says it will make you unstable or lose your stability and fall. And here the idea is a kind of falling away of Christ or apostasy. Don't get caught up in the current of bad life and doctrine of lawless people and the, the crowd that might grow around it. People who don't obey Christ and his word. Don't let the unstable cause you to lose your stability. See, on, he says here, on Christ the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand or a two-legged stool. You ever tried to sit on a two-legged stool? Don't pick your legs up. It's dangerous. Right? It just topples over. He says, I, I want you to remain stable firmly on the doctrines about who Christ is. Those will keep you standing on the day of judgment. Does Peter fear his people could lose their salvation here? Well, Peter at least thinks some might be in danger of not being ready for God's fiery judgment on the last day, where the works of men will be judged, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 3. See, Peter seems to understand, like Paul, that 
perseverance is a mark of the true faith. Those who truly know God in Christ make it to the end. Isn't that good news? Those of us who are in Christ, we will make it to the end. We will persevere. Why will we persevere? Because he will preserve us. It is God's grace that undergirds our grit that gets us to the end. And all glory will go to Christ in that. See, those who truly know God in Christ make it to the end. Making it to the end means standing firm in the faith. Now, I think here it's just really important to remember this. Lots of people are fighting about doctrine these days. Lots of people are fighting about everything these days. Some disagree over whether there will be here a rapture or when the rapture will be or whether there will be a literal thousand-year reign or not, and if so, what the status of literal Israel will be during the thousand years, etc., etc. See, our church believes that there are all kinds of things that are hard to understand and that we have openness to, to think through freely. Our church believes we can disagree on the issues, these issues as long as we maintain a spiritual, a spiritual uh, sense of humility and unity. But we need to guard gospel issues tenaciously unwaveringly, unflinchingly. We don't, we don't stop to ask whether or not, you know, should we still hold to justification by faith alone? I don't know. Maybe we should revisit that. Should we still believe that the Bible is God's word? I don't know. Let's revisit it. Should we really believe that God cares about how we live our lives sexually? I don't know. Let's revisit it. Let's take a straw poll. That, that's not the kind of faith that holds you fast in the end. We trust what God has said. And one of the things that I think is so important, we need to be humble about our doctrine, but we need to be tenaciously strong. This is one reason that our leadership recently has doubled down on our commitment to teach good doctrine that guards and springs up into eternal life this last year. We just said, we've always done it, we've always had this focus on equipping, but we've said, you know what, this is something central to what we're doing, not just on Sunday mornings and the sermons, but also in classes. So the classes that we have, we believe that you need to be trained. We need to be trained, educated better. So we moved our equipping ministry to the center of our efforts to make disciple-making disciples and plant disciple-making churches. We entrusted Malachi with overseeing our equipping program, and we hired Ryan Fields to help us with these classes geared towards helping you to know knowledge that will get you ready to meet Jesus on the last day. That's our hope. We want you to be ready. We want you to know where there are places that need to be fortified. So we're going to have classes that are coming on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And those classes really are aimed. They're aimed at different areas. One is like spiritual formation. Areas like prayer and uh, understanding how to fast and those kinds of disciplines. Uh, the second area that we're going to be focusing on is theology. We want you to understand the grand story of what God has done and who he is. And then also classes on understanding the Bible, which is where we get our theology. Uh, we're hoping that these prepare you and equip you for that last day. It's going to be in a three-year rotation, the classes that we teach, and we're hoping that you're all able to go through those. But did you understand that this is not just something that we do because churches need to do something? This is something that we are doing because we want to see each of you on that last day when we come before Jesus to hear him say, well done, my, my good and faithful servant. We want each of you to be there with us in this new heavens and new earth that we long for. But not only that, notice verse 18. He says this, believers need to grow in grace and knowledge. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, God's grace saved believers in 2 Peter 1.1. Peter prayed that grace would be multiplied to them in 1.2. And in 1.3-4, grace granted believers everything they needed to live a godly life. Take note, grace from above that comes from God to you is not static. It is something that is incredibly dynamic and life-giving. Grace is a gift that requires grit, and yet it is a grit that we cannot manufacture ourselves apart from the grace of God. God's grace also requires nurturing to grow. The grace that we receive, he says here, is a grace that needs for us to grow in it. Grow in this grace. Mature in this grace. See, salvation is the most expensive free gift you will ever receive. You see the tension there? It's a free gift, but it cost God the Father, his very son. Very free, very expensive at the same time. In the same way, grace is something that is a free gift, but also something that results in a new life. 
It's free to you, but it costs Christ his life. God's grace also requires nurturing to grow. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 4, 20, when he's talking about the, the word that falls on different soils? How do you know which soil is good? Well, he says, ultimately, it's the one that grows up and bears fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. It is a fruitful, growing kind of tree. Now, there are two things that I think we see here as we grow in grace. First, fruit doesn't save you. You might have great gifts, and people are like, look at your gifts. You're so good at speaking. You're so good at praying. You're so good at all kinds of things. You must have a special seat in heaven. And yet, Jesus warns in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, after talking about the good fruit tree and the tree with no fruit, that on the last day, many will come to him who say, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons and did miracles. And yet Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. On the last day, our fruit will be inspected by fire to show if we are spiritually alive or dead. That's the only opinion that ultimately matters. Second, no growth means we're spiritually dead. Saving grace brings sanctifying grace. Wouldn't it be strange if we were to go to lunch and I were to walk in and sit down at a restaurant with you, and I have a, a new baby girl. Me and Gia have a little girl, Mia. She's beautiful. She smiles all the time. Imagine for a second that I just reached down into my, my book bag, and I pulled out one of her bottles full of milk, and I said, hold on, I just got to suck this down, so I'm, I'm ready to go. You know, I got to protein up. And then when I got done, I just sort of bent over and said, hey, could you just like a little pat? I need a burp. It's kind of painful if I don't do that. I don't think about that too much. There's a lot wrong with that picture. But, but our appetites for spiritual things should mature and our stability should strengthen such that we no longer crawl around on the ground, right? But are able to stand firm and stable. Like you push a baby that's just learning to walk, what do they do? Topple over. Like just a little nudge. You, you go up against a, a strong, burly man and you push him, what happens? You get punched. So you just, you want to make sure that you are growing in maturity. That's kind of the expectation of where grace touches down, that we will grow, that we'll move on from uh, milk to, uh, to meat, that we will uh, move on from crawling to actually walking and running in Christ. See, we can't be stable if we don't also grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the object of our knowing. We must know about him and relationally know him as we listen to his voice and seek to obey him. God gives us all kinds of gifts to grow us and mature us in the faith. He gives us pastors. You know, I have pastors, fellow elders who shepherd my soul. We are pastors who shepherd your souls. Is a gift to you to help mature you, to grow you, to protect you, to care for you, to nurture you. Uh, you have other gifts like the, the local church is a body that's meant to stir you up towards love and good works as we look for that day when Jesus comes back. There are other things, but here's what's interesting. Peter dismounts in verse 18 with a short doxology with massive implications. See, doxologies are directed towards glorifying God himself. Peter opened this letter calling Jesus our God and Savior. He closes this letter glorifying Christ as God, saying, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So what does Jesus deserve glory for, though? Jesus is God. And your salvation from beginning to end has been a work of Christ. He deserves glory for his work of saving you at the cross. For his life of sinless perfection, which created the righteous account upon which is the only firm ground before God the Father and God the Son and the Spirit and the last day when we come before him in judgment. He is the one who is preserving us to the end. He's the one that is empowering by his Spirit fruit that ushers up into life, not death. Christ is the one who is, even in this moment, mediating relationship between you and the Father. Even as you pray to him, it all goes through Christ, through the Son to the Father, by the power of the Spirit, so that he is glorious in this. And on that last day, he will return 
to make all things right. And he will be the place where righteousness dwells and we dwell with him. And from there and forevermore, he will be the one that is enthroned, the Father, the Son. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we will worship him forever, glorify him for what he did to rescue us. So let me ask you, do you see the tension in this text that should characterize our lives? We should be patient for that day of judgment. It's going to be a terrific day, especially for those who are not ready. Be patient. We're not looking for a tragedy to happen quickly. We, we want God's patience to save everyone. So on those days where you're like, this is just taking too long, don't forget what you're waiting for. And maybe this morning you're thinking to yourself, man, I just, I need to be eager. I need to be eager. I'm, I'm really patient. I like how life is. I'm kind of happy where I am. My family's good. I've got a, a beautiful wife, beautiful kids. I want to see them play basketball. I want to beat them some more before they get, maybe you could come just before they're able to beat me at basketball. Be good timing. I like, I like how life is. You need to be reminded that you need a patient eagerness. That eagerness is, I think, developed through meditating on the new heavens and the new earth that is coming. If we really understand the beauties and the glories of that, we would not be able to wait. No fears, no tears. A glorious creation free from corruption. Have you seen the glories of this universe? They are old and tired and in pain and awaiting a good day. The best day that you've had. Basement, not the ceiling of what's coming. Be eager for it. Be patiently eager. Be eagerly patient. If you're a non-Christian here, I, I just want to encourage you. Don't leave this place without putting your faith in Christ. That'll be the most terrifying day in the world for those who have not trusted him and him alone to be ready for that day. If you'd like to hear more about it, don't leave without talking to me. We have a number of brothers and sisters in Christ who would love nothing more than to spend a little time this afternoon after the service sharing Christ with you more. But let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Will you pray with me? Fathers, we come before you. We praise you. We praise you that you are indeed our glorious Lord. That you're a God who is coming to make all things new. Father, that this world that is surrounded with corruption and justice where it's hard to find righteousness, will one day give way to a day of perfect righteousness where righteousness will dwell forever. Father, we pray for that day to come. Lord, help us to be patient. Help us to be eager. And help everyone here to be ready. It's your name we do pray. Amen.